Uh, one of the things that's been beautiful about uh, raising three boys is noticing uh, the reality of that phrase, like father, like son, play out in real life. I, I don't know if you've had kids and seen this, uh, but for me, uh, uh, it's been a beautiful thing to watch the ways that uh, my boys uh, actually reflect me and, and my character as their father. I mean, I think some of this is true for daughters as well. Uh, but when your, your boys do this, they begin to, to actually, for both good and bad, look like dad. Now, this isn't just physical. Uh, we know that this is actually also in their character. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you've probably heard me say before that um, I had uh, at one point Ben come to me and say, Hey, Dad, I think I'm going to become a Cowboys football fan. And I said, That's fine. And then Ben looked at me and he said, really? I, I thought that you wouldn't let me do that. I said, absolutely. You can cheer for whoever you want. You'll just have to find somewhere else to live. And so uh, Ben realized that if he's in my home, we're going to cheer for the saints. And that's just the way that it is. Uh, they also pick up on small little nuances in your character. Like I remember uh, one time uh, when one of my sons was just six, we pulled up to the, the window at McDonald's and uh, one of my sons screamed from the back, hey dad, could you grab me a, a Diet Coke with light ice? And I'm thinking, what kind of six-year-old asks for a Diet Coke with light ice? Well, one that listens to his dad order a Diet Coke with light ice from McDonald's probably too many times. And all of this is showing how they can pick up on our character. Uh, there's a way in which they image their dad. Uh, now, uh, I was even going to tell y'all a super funny story this morning, a new one. Uh, but as one of my kids was helping go through the manuscript, he said, Dad, you can't share this. And I said, why not? He said, it's too embarrassing. And even in that, I was hugely proud because he realized that that's not the image that we're going for, right? So as I think about kids, they show the character of their fathers, of course, we know that our God created humans to image him. And even though God isn't father to every human in the same way, God created every human, both male and female, in his image and after his likeness to multiply and fill the earth with his glory and exercise a godlike kind of dominion over it, displaying the awesome character of God. Uh, but you'll remember in the very first pages of the scriptures in Genesis 3, Adam sinned against God. And it was after that that we saw that this imaging, uh, this reality that we were created with the image of God, uh, was not just something beautiful, but it was also something that was very fearsome. It was fearsome to see the reality of like father, like son playing out when Adam's son, Cain, killed his brother Abel as a result of the sin of his father. So there, there are ways in which our children reflect our character for the good, but then aren't there always also ways in which they reflect our character that scare us? Well, we'll see that this morning as we're back in our series in the life of David. We're in 2 Samuel 13, where we're going to see the continued consequence of David's sins from back in 2 Samuel 11, where he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to murder Uriah to cover it up. Now, in this text, what we find is, is that David's sons actually reflect the very specific and exact sins that we saw back in chapter 11. Uh, like father, like son is going to play out in a very terrifying way yet again in the scriptures. Now, if you're just joining us, let me catch you up to speed. David, for much of his life, as you track with him beginning back in 1 Samuel, looks like an absolute superhero. He, he shows that he is the one through whom God would save his people. He is the spirit-anointed king who would save his people. Uh, God would save his people through him without sword or spear. 
It would be clear that it was God that saved and delivered his people through his king. And then in 2 Samuel 12, you'll remember that after he sinned greatly in chapter 11, in that absolute crime scene of, of murder and adultery, in chapter 12, he repented to God and God pardoned his sin. But you'll remember there that God also promised to bring an offspring. This is the king who was a special king through whom God would bring an offspring who would give an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. But how is this king who sins and then is pardoned in 2 Samuel 12 going to be the one who produces the king who is going to bring justice to the land and the one who is going to be able to bring salvation to his people? You'll remember also that as David was being told about the consequences of his sins. And, and right before his pardon, God said in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 12, the sword shall never depart from your house as a consequence of your sin. And, and he then says, and I will raise up evil against you, and it's going to come from out of your own house in verse 11. So David knew that his house would be full of the sword because of his sin. So 2 Samuel 13 reveals the terrifying side of like father, like son, as David sees his sins not only replicated, but escalated. You not only see his sons commit the very same sins that he committed, but it looks so much worse as we find chapter 13. Dads and kids, listen close. First and second Samuel has all kinds of examples of kids who either look like their parents or don't. And, and that is true in the economy of God. Usually your kids are going to look like your parents, but there are all kinds of ways that God shows up and has kids who didn't have godly parents become godly kids, or uh, those who sometimes have godly parents don't necessarily, they're not promised that they're going to experience the saving grace of God. Sometimes men produce kids who don't look like their dads. And that can be good and bad. You'll remember, even in 1 Samuel, Eli... Seems to be a really good man and yet has kids who are literally called scoundrels. Now, if somebody calls your kids scoundrels, that's not a compliment, just in case you were wondering. And not only that, we find that Samuel, whom the book is named after, good guy. And yet his kids, we are told, they perverted justice. Good men, bad kids. Yet you also know that there are other cases like crazy King Saul. Not a good guy, right? And yet, what do we find? He produced Jonathan, one of the godly men that we find in, in the Old Testament. And so we find that it is not always that kids end up like their parents. but So often they do. And here in 2 Samuel 13, we see the reality that our kids can both reflect and amplify the sins of their fathers. So this morning, we're going to see this, that David's sons follow David's pattern of sin. Amnon violates his sister Tamar, and Absalom kills Amon for this. Now, the terrifying thing here is this. If David's sons look worse and worse than their father David did, what hope is there going to be for the kingdom and the nations through whom this king was supposed to be the promised hope? Well, here's our big idea that we're going to be thinking about. It's this. It's that we need a greater Messiah who images his father in heaven. We need a greater Messiah who images his father in heaven in heaven. Uh, now we're going to see this first uh, beginning in verses 1 to 22 where Amnon violates his sister worse than David did Bathsheba. Amnon violates his sister worse than Bathsheba than David did Bathsheba. 
But let's open up in prayer. Will you pray with me? Let's ask for God's help. God, this morning we are coming before you. And Father, we are opening up your word, and we want to see the true things of you that have been spoken so that we might know you. Father, help us to see you clearly. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you give us words that would convict us and give us hope of life. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see here is how Amnon violates his sister. Now, just as Adam's sin was followed by hostility between his sons, here we find David's sin result in hostility between his sons, Amnon and Absalom. Now, 2 Samuel 3 tells us that Amnon was actually the first son and heir to the throne. Uh, Chiliab was the second son, but he's never mentioned again. And so it looks as though Absalom is actually next in line to the throne behind Amnon. And here we find that the tension is already surfacing as we're told in the very first verse that Amnon was in love with his beautiful half-sister, who is also Absalom's full sister, Tamar. Sound kind of familiar? You'll remember that Amnon's father fell when he saw a very beautiful woman. But in both of those cases, what might have felt like love, you know what I'm talking about? Like you, you just know that it's got to be love. Um, you, you haven't talked to her yet, but man, it's, she's got to love Jesus. I can see it all over, right? Like that's exactly what he's experienced. But we'll find that this is actually lust. An inordinate desire, especially for something forbidden by God. That's lust. And that's what Amnon has for this woman. Catch what happens in verse 2. Did you see that? It says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon, he's lovesick, he's tormented. Because it seemed impossible to have her. And why could he not have her? Well, we don't know for sure. We could guess, we could speculate on a, a few reasons. One is, incest is against the law of God. Also, you'll notice that her virginity is highlighted. She's a godly woman. She has been obedient to Deuteronomy. And keeping herself a virgin until she was a marriageable age for her husband. So she is pictured as a, a godly woman. Now, the interesting thing is the future king, he could have had just about any woman in the kingdom, but he longed for this forbidden fruit. And it almost seems as though he wanted her, and he wanted her more and was more angry because she was a faithful, godly woman whom he couldn't just take. See, he isn't lovesick, he's lustsick. Now, if you look at verse 3, you'll, you'll notice that his cousin, Jonadab, shows up. Did you catch that? So he is in this moment of, of desire, and Jonadab comes in to speak into his life. Just hang with me. Be careful about who you let speak into your lives when you're in a place where you know that you have desires to do things that don't please God. He gives voice to his cousin. Now, Jonadab, you'll notice in verse 3, is described there as a very crafty man. Now, look this up. It doesn't mean that he frequented Hobby Lobby. This is a word for wisdom, a kind of 
wisdom that can be good or bad, but here it's a, it's a worldly kind of wisdom. Now don't miss this. Amnon struggled with a worldly, self-centered kind of love. This is not biblical love. And, and in the midst of that, his cousin shows up with a worldly kind of wisdom to help him get the worldly thing that he longed for. See, godly wisdom would have rebuked and corrected Amnon using God's word. Godly wisdom would have reminded Amnon of David's fall and the consequences. But here in verses 4 to 6, he concocts a plan for Amnon to act like he is sick. And in the midst of this, he's going to have his father, David, come to him, and he's going to request David to make Tamar come and care for him and make him some bread, probably some bread with like herbs in it that, that makes him better. And he wants her to, to feed him to, under this guise that he needs to get well. Well, you'll notice that David shows up like a good dad. He's checking on, out on his sick son and making sure he's all right. And while David was so active in his sin in 1 Samuel 11, what's interesting here in this text is David becomes super passive. It's like he's a part playing a role in bringing about the consequences of the sin that God said would come, and yet he's powerless to see what's happening. So David shows up, and when he asks for Tamar to come care for him, David literally brings Tamar to him to help in this plan, and David doesn't know what's going on. And while David was active in his sin, here he is passive as an agent, bringing about the events that God had promised would happen. It reminds me in this story a, a little bit like of that Geico commercial. The one about horror movies where you see these young people running away from like this psycho and they're like, I don't know where to go. Maybe we should go to that car that's like gassed up and it's going and it's ready to run away. And they're like, no, that's a horrible idea. We should run over to that shed full of chainsaws. Wasn't that the way that horror movies tend to go? I mean, I don't watch those, but I hear that like usually people always make horrible decisions, like the worst possible decision. And that's exactly what you see unfolding here in, first, in 2 Samuel 13. I mean, if you saw David in chapter 11, you're wondering, don't you get it? This is not a good idea. But the plan worked. David sent Tamar to Amnon in verse 7. And look with me at what happens in verses 10 all the way down through verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made, and she, she brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, sister. And she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing as for me. Where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now, there are a couple things that, that strike me here. First, Amnon violated Tamar. And it is here described in a way that it is not prescribed. Just please take note. 
This is not saying that this is okay. It's meant to be seen as an act that is despicable and horrific and nothing like the way that God would have men treat women. And notice that Tamar says that he would bring shame on her. She is godly and she's trying to stop the sin. She's in some ways trying to intercede with him like Abigail did with David, preventing him from killing the ball. That fool. But here, notice that she says Amnon would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now this word for fool is interesting. It comes from the same word for Nabal that's mentioned in 1 Samuel 25. You'll remember there that he was that outrageous fool who did really dumb stuff and almost got himself killed by David. And if you're wondering, like, well, what is a fool according to the scriptures? Um, uh, I think that Isaiah 32.6 gives us a really helpful definition. Uh, here's what he says. Isaiah 32.6. For the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness. To utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. And to deprive the thirsty of drink. You you really can't miss this. Jonadab's wisdom, that wise plan that he gave to help Amnon satisfy his hunger, his lust. That one that left him angry and that did not satisfy. That is the wisdom that Jonadab had. Jonadab had a worldly kind of wisdom, and that worldly kind of wisdom was a wisdom that could be characterized by his heart being busy with iniquity. That's not wise. It's not wise just because you have a desire that you can fill. You've heard it said, the heart wants what it wants. And maybe that's even kind of a motto for you. Like, I'm a victim of my desires, and if I want it, it must be okay. And if I want it, it can't be that bad. It's like a truism that justifies the longings of our hearts. But what if God giving you what your heart wants is judgment? Have you ever thought about that? If God is sovereign and you want things that are contrary to him and he protects you from those things, but eventually he allows you to have those things, what if God giving you the thing that you want that is contrary to his law is actually his judgment? Kind of like in Romans 12, I mean 124, where God, we are told, gave up the Gentiles, gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, which caused them to, to reside under the wrath of God. See, not every desire of our hearts is equally good or right. God's word gives the wisdom that we need to discern. And here's a good desire, though. Here's a good desire. Every human heart longs for a kind of shalom in the home and peace because God created families to be fruitful and to multiply and to exercise dominion as they experience peace with God and one another. That's the goal. Amnon's sin is not okay. It creates another kind of world of hostility. This this activity of Amnon, it's not just. Second, notice that not only is this not prescribed here, but Amnon's sin both resembles David's sin and it escalates it. Did you notice that? So in 1 Samuel 11, you'll remember that it says, David took Bathsheba and he laid with her. If you read the exact language of uh, 2 Samuel 13, you'll notice that it adds to that phrase. It says, he, Amnon, violated Tamar and lay with her. 
In other words, it's an escalation. It, it gives a picture clearly of violence that's not given back in, in 2 Samuel 11. We don't know what happened there. But here it's clear that there's a picture that is being drawn that the sins of the, the son have been amplified and escalated even though they resemble the sins of the father. And here in verse 14, we see this so clearly. Like father, like son is really only half the story because Amnon not only replicates his, David's sins, he escalates them. See, David took care of Bathsheba. You remember that? Took her into his home, cared for her. But did you notice how Amnon responds in verse 15? Look there. In verse 15, it says this. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. I'm just curious. Do you all know what the meaning of that verse is? Was it, was it a little subtle? That he hated her, hating her, hating her with the great hatred with which he hated her? I mean, it was four times he actually repeatedly said that he hated her. The one who was this deep object of his love and affections. See, Amnon, his lust looked like love, but it was really hate. In fact, hate is repeated four times in verse 14, punctuating a cycle that repeats itself Every day before us, mistaken love in verse 1 is lust that results in sin before becoming utter hatred. See, Amnon took Tamar's virginity, had her servant throw her out, his servant threw her out like trash. And then he told that servant, bolt the door after her. I mean, can you see the, the way that he is responding to this daughter of the king. See, Tamar was so grieved over this, she tore that garment that she wore that represented her virginity as a, a, a prize of the king that was to be given to a, a worthy husband. She, she rips it apart. She puts ashes on her heads, and she goes away weeping loudly as she goes. See, Amnon is first in line for the throne and you have to ask yourself in this moment, as you see this picture of this sister walking away in shame, is this the king through whom the promises will be made? Will he bring the justice that we long for? Now the reality that we see, David's sin, not only replicated but also escalated in Amnon, ought to cause us to stop and consider, what are we to do with this? So I have 250 applications. Are y'all ready? I'm joking. I don't, everybody's like, wait, what? All I want to say is there is so much that we could draw out of this. But I want, to, I want to focus on a couple. First, if you're a woman that has been violated, and you've had someone who has treated you like Tamar was treated by her brother, and you feel like all is lost or guilty as though you brought it on yourself, know that this text is not meant to justify this behavior. It's meant to describe the horrors of this world and our need for Jesus to come back, bringing justice and vengeance, and he is coming. There is a day when all things will be set right. And that's not just for those who are in Christ. God is a God of justice who is bringing justice to this world. Every wrong will be made right in Christ. 
See, God brings justice to all, but he offers something more to those who have an identity in Christ. And if if this is you and and you feel like you don't have an identity anymore, don't know who you are because how you've been treated, I want you to know that the answer is Christ. See, if you are in Christ, you have a new identity whereby you become a daughter of God and heir to his kingdom. That's the hope that we have in Christ. That's your identity in Jesus, a, a reality and love that no power can take from you, either a power seen or unseen, is that which you have procured and given to you in Christ. You are given new garments that give you a new identity and a new position and station before God. See, God sees Tamar and God sees you. Judges, relationships between men and women, they get darker and darker if you read through that book. Even the, the judges that are meant to save display themselves as men who do not treat women well. And the relationships are ironic throughout. And it seems that the answer in the book of Judges is given in this statement that is repetitively given through Judges. In those days, there was no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what that man did was not good for women. All through Judges. And kings are supposed to be the answer. And here's the heir to the throne. And we see the way that he treats women. And men doing what, what, what is in their hearts, apart from the Spirit of God, is dark. But here, David's future heir looks like he'll make things worse, not better. Do you, do you sense that? This is not the king. This future king, he doesn't look like God. This future king doesn't remember Genesis 1.26, where we have a God who we are told on the very first page of the Bible created all things good. And at the climax of that, he created man and woman. And he created them in his image and after his likeness that they might multiply and fill the earth with image bearers so that the whole earth would be full of his glory as they exercise a godlike dominion showing the power of God. See, this story here tells us that we need a better king who truly images God, who is not like a monster like Amnon or other men who have taken advantage of women. But there's a second thing that, that we can't skip here. Like father, like son, daughters, you too, should terrify us just a little bit. As fathers. You know, famed commentator Matthew Henry, he wrote the, the, the commentary that George Whitfield said was his favorite commentary, one of the two books he took with him on the mission field alongside, um, not a comic book, his Bible, right? So he had the commentary by Matthew Henry, and his Bible, and he's out, he's evangelizing. And he said this, Matthew Henry in his commentary about this text, he says, godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. You know, I think there's, there's some true. We, we might want to in some ways debate the language there and the way that we parse that out but there is a true sense in which we can see our sins repeated in our kids and the reality here is that our kids can not only replicate our sins but escalate them and that should make us I believe desperately dependent upon Jesus do you see it a text like this ought to make us see how dependent we are on Christ in prayer in obedience and confession when we fail, and in trusting God with their futures. Three things I want to leave you with fathers, just this Father's Day, things that you should be thinking about as you're thinking about what kind of image am I setting for my kids. First, I would encourage you to be dependent on Jesus in prayer. Pray like John Patton's dad. John Patton was that missionary to the cannibals, 
of the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, John Patton, I love in his autobiography, he tells this story that I've never forgotten. He, he talks about his life growing up. And he says, I will never forget the way every day my dad would come home and take time in the middle of the home. He would close his door and I would listen and we would hear the house trembling with his voice crying out for our salvation. That's the thing that he remembered for his dad. And dads, I'm just wondering, your kids, do they hear you praying for them? And how do they hear you praying for them? Do they hear you praying please to God for help that you know only he can give? Dads, let me just encourage you, pray for your kids. I pray most nights with my boys, and somebody's always praying with them. Gia's doing it sometimes. I'm doing as much as I can. And one constant is, is I'm praying for them that they will love Jesus above all else and have true faith. Praying that every night, begging God. Asking God that he would make them tender and tough as they grow up. I want them to have tender hearts towards other people. And yet at the same time, I want them to be tough for God. Not to be flinching in their faith at all. I, I long for that for them. That God would make them tender and tough, but also that God would provide them with godly wives in the future if he's called them to marriage. That those women would love Jesus more than them and love them better because they love Jesus most. Men, fathers, moms too, we need to obey Jesus when we think nobody is watching and we need to confess it when we sin. We need to obey Jesus when nobody... I am shocked by how, how my kids are always watching me and most often the times when I don't want them to. Now, we are called to live obedient lives and image what it looks like to love Jesus. But we are not perfect and there will be times where we fall and we need to confess. And our kids, catch this, even when we fail and we confess, we are modeling what it looks like to love Jesus. We are showing them that we are not Jesus in the home. Jesus is and that dad's accountable too. Uh, just the other day, I remember I was... Um, thinking about something that just like absolutely infuriated me and uh, ever had something like that before. And I was like, man, that is so dumb. I didn't think anybody was listening. All three kids listening. And my kids love me. So they're, they're like, well, dad, if he senses injustice, then we sense injustice too. And they're like, yeah, dad, that's dumb. And not only is that dumb, that person who did that thing was dumb. And who would do with a stupid thing like that? And it was motivated because they loved their dad and they wanted to support their dad. And in that moment, I realized what I'd done. I'd been a bad model. And so I said, okay, guys, we need to, we need to come on in the room. Brought them all in, sat them down. I said, look, um, dad just sinned. Like I lost my temper. I said something was dumb and, and I shouldn't have. I didn't speak kindly. I didn't practice self-control. And godly men show self-control. So I'm just repenting before you. I did the wrong thing. Y'all just need to know that. And it was a super humbling moment. It was one of those moments where you're thinking like, great, dad just had to put his cape away. Never going to get it back. But praise God that I had an opportunity to show my kids that Jesus is the hero of our home, not dad. Dad needs to confess too. Dad, dad sins too. And third, we need to, as fathers and mothers, trust God with the future of our children. You know, I've had a, a brother who called me the other day who shared with me that his kid We've been praying for for 15 years to come Christ. And she came into his office and confessed that she, she really did sense her sin. She was weeping over her sin and said that she needed Jesus and wanted to come to Christ. And so we uh, prayed. Uh, I prayed with his brother, just praising God for answering prayer over the salvation of his daughter. It was an exciting moment, a joyous moment. But it was in that moment that I realized that I need to pray all the more for my kids and your kids 
And we need to, at the end of the day, trust God with the future of our children. We need to trust him as we walk faithfully and pray for them that God is sovereign. He is good. And kids, if you're listening this morning and you have not identified yourself as a Christian and understood that you need to put your faith in Christ, I want you to know this and you need to listen close. Mom and dad being a Christian does not mean that you're a Christian. Now, your mom and dad loving Jesus, man, that is one of the great blessings in all of life. But your mom and dad loving Jesus doesn't mean that you automatically walk into the kingdom of God. You need to know that you're a sinner, that you have disobeyed God. You need to know that what that means is, is that you need Jesus Christ himself, who came and lived a perfectly obedient life that you couldn't live, and died on a cross for the punishment that you deserved, and was raised from the dead so that if you put your faith in that king, that you'll become a Christian like your mom and dad and have hope just not now forever, but forever. That's the gospel. So if you haven't done that, that's a great thing maybe for you to talk about with your mom or dad or whoever you're here with today. Talk to them about what it means to be a Christian. Now verses 20 to 22 in this text are interesting. Absalom tells his sister, do not take this to heart. We're going to see this again in a minute. But notice in verse 20, do not take this to heart. And he takes her into his house. But he doesn't say a word to Amnon about it. So you're thinking, well, maybe he's, he's okay with it. But then you notice that David was very angry with Amnon in verse 21. But he didn't do anything to him. David was passive. He did not do anything to his son. And then Absalom, notice he hated Amnon in his heart because he had violated his sister Tamar. Well, we see how that sin, that desire in the heart plays out in verses 23 to 39 where Absalom murders his brother. So catch this, you'll remember Absalom has been simmering in his anger here for two years, planning vengeance on Amnon in verse 23. And here's what it says, verse 23. After two full years, Absalom and sheep herders at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So he's, he has a party. And in verse 24, it says, And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Now, you'll remember that sheep shears set the context for David's anger with Nabal back in 1 Samuel 25, where Nabal was not showing hospitality to David or gratitude, and David was about to kill him. It's the same sort of similar context here. And here Absalom has plans to take out another fool, his brother Amnon. Now verses 25 to 27, if you look there, you'll notice that Absalom asked David to join his feast with all of his brothers. And when David denies the request, Absalom asks for Amnon to come in his stead. Now eventually David grants the request and sends Amnon. Now here again, David looks like a passive instrument unwittingly setting up his son to die. Do you see it? He he sent his daughter to Amnon, and now he's sending Amnon to Absalom. But catch what happens in verses 28 to 29. This is what it says. Then Absalom commanded his servants, as Amnon and all of the men were there celebrating, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, Then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. 
So the servants of Absalom did as Amnon, to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Well, this is an interesting scene. With that, Absalom had his brother killed, and the celebration turns into a time of mourning and terror, sending all of his brothers running for their lives. In fact, in verses 30 to 33, someone tells Absalom, that, or tells David that Absalom has struck down all of David's sons. And David and all of his servants tear their garments to mourn the death of these sons. Well, here comes cousin Jonadab again. Mr. Worldly Wisdom. He shows up in verses 32 to 33, and catch what he says. He says, Let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Did you catch that? Don't take it to heart. It's just Amnon. Now, I find a couple of things fascinating about Jonadab here. For one, do you wonder how Jonadab knew what had happened to Amnon and his sons before the king's sons returned in verses 35 to 36? Just interesting. They're running for their lives. They're not like poking around or taking like pit stops, right, at Circle K. Like they're they're getting home as soon as possible to safety, and yet Jonadab Conley says, it's okay. Like, it's just Amnon. I don't know if he has a crystal ball or if he was part of the plan. Was he helping Absalom? When did he start helping Absalom? Was he helping Absalom when he was giving counsel to Amnon? We don't know, but the sons were running for their lives. And, and you just have to ask, how did Jonadab know what happened before the others did? And second, along with that, doesn't Jonadab's word to King David sound a lot like Absalom's words to Tamar? When he says, don't take this thing to heart. What's this thing? That your son's dead. Don't let that go to your heart, get to you. I mean, that's worldly wisdom to say, don't take the rape of Tamar to heart. Don't take the death of Amnon to heart. See, crafty here isn't godly. The king and his sons rightly wept over the death of their son and brother and the future heir of the throne at the hands of another brother. And the more that we move away from God's wisdom to the wisdom of this world, the less that we see the dignity of every human life. The more that we lose sight of the glory of God, the more we will lose sight of the dignity of every human life, male and female, elderly and infant, white, black, or other, rich or poor, as we move away from seeing God as our maker and the one in whom has fashioned us to image him, the less we will see the dignity of every single human life. See, God's king should image God. And these kings look less and less like God. So you have to ask yourself, what is our hope in all of this? Well, like father, like son is seen most truly in the relationship between Jesus and our heavenly father. You know, for now, we see God in ourselves most clearly in God's greater king, Jesus. Take note, we see God in Christ Jesus. We see God the Father in the face of Christ. And this story really is pointing us forward 
to God's greater Son who would be sent from heaven to take on the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who was born of the Holy Spirit and another virgin, the Virgin Mary, through whom the great hope of humanity would come. Uh, you'll remember how Colossians 1.15 speaks of this Son. We are told there that He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so much so that Jesus tells Philip in John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Hebrews 1, 3, it tells us that he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. See, God sent us the king who displayed God's character. He's not like earthly kings who follow, follow worldly wisdom. Jesus came from above. And don't miss this. In Christ, we see the glory of God, but we also see the dignity of humanity revving on all cylinders. In other words, when we see Jesus, it's not just to see God the Father. We see humanity as God created us to be. Who is the most human, that's, human human that's ever lived? Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us what it looks like to live as a human. Uh, you've probably heard before that uh, there was a time um, that it was said that like Harley Davidson put like a patent on the sound of their engines because it was so like distinct and beautiful. And then like there were some that tried to like replicate it. And so they tried to get sort of a, a copyright or a patent on it, a trademark. And uh, some have said that that's happened. It hasn't really happened. I traced that down, but they did try to. And, and the reason was, was because it was such a unique, glorious sound in the ears of some that they wanted to say no one else should be like this. This is the only true Harley engine. Well, there's a real sense in which Jesus is like that. He is the standard of humanity, what humanity revving on all cylinders really truly looks like. Because humanity was created male and female in God's image and after his likeness, but after the fall, it was broken, and Jesus comes and shows us what it was truly intended to be. Think about this. Jesus never dated or married and yet we are told that he is the ground of the meaning and purpose of a healthy, godly marriage in Ephesians 5. Why? Because Jesus shows us how men are to treat women. How is that? Well, if you look in Ephesians 5, it is that each man is to love his own wife with a sacrificial love, washing her in the word and laying down her, his life for her as Christ did for what? The church. Every marriage, that beginning in Genesis 1, that mystery through the ages, pointing to and fulfilled in Christ. That's biblical manhood according to God's wisdom, not the craftiness of this world. And godly husbands love their wives in an understanding way according to 1 Peter 3, 7. And Jesus didn't come to take life like Absalom. No, he, he's not like Amnon or Absalom. He, he didn't come to take life like Absalom. Mark 10, 45 says this, for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's what humanity looks like, loving one another sacrificially, not tearing one another down, but building one another up. And Jesus shows us both what God is like and what humanity is supposed to be. Let me close with this, what it means for us to live in this way. Uh, I love a new book, John Kilner, working through Dignity and Destiny, argues that every human is created with the image of God and for the image of God with the image of God in the sense that we were born with this dignity that we all have. And it is also a destiny in the sense that after the fall, it is something that we aspire to and will grow into through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, 
All humans come with dignity, the dignity of God. What that means is, is that there is something intrinsic in who we are, something almost ontological about the nature of humanity that is so tied to us that if we are, say, have some kind of disability, uh, that, that, that if we are diverse in our color, if we are diverse in our gender, that we still bear the image of God, even if we don't acknowledge God. That is the dignity of humanity. It's something glorious that we only find in the pages of Scripture about the nature of how we have been made. Murder is such a grave sin because we are made in the image of God. No matter how old or young in pregnancy, male or female, every ethnicity, rich and poor, all people carry dignity as created in God's image. That's the ground of our worth and value. If we lose that, we lose the dignity of humanity. In fact, James 3.9 seems to use this as a justification for people not to curse other people because he says they are made in the likeness of God. If we really understood the significance of what God has done and the humans all around us, that they bear God's image, I, I think, I, I have to think that it would mean that humanity collectively would look, it would look different. See, every human life has dignity, but those in Christ also have something more. We have destiny. We are not left in this repetitive cycle of kings whose sons look less and less like them. We are part of redeemed humanity who has a, a destiny that's been given to us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. God is changing us through his spirit to look more like the humans that he created us to be. We are displaying his character as we are led by the spirit and not by the flesh. So if you're a Christian, you're not static. God is sanctifying you so that you look more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. And therefore, that image of God who created you in his image is being transformed in you so that you are beginning to see what it was that you were created to be. So you need to ask yourself if you're a Christian, are you growing spiritually? Are you looking more like Christ in the way that you were loving others? Who knows you enough to help you see that in your life? But there's also a greater day coming. See, anyone here who feels like they keep failing at imaging God and long for so much more, I believe that longing for more is something that has been put in the heart of the people of God. We are awaiting a greater day that is coming, a day when Jesus will return, when we're not left with one degree of glory to the next, we're given 100%. It's what we're supposed to be. Can't wait for that day. Glorification. First uh, John 3, 2 speaks of this when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, being Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's our destiny. We shall image God as he has made us to. So closing with Kevin DeYoung, what he says here, I love this. He says, so the image of God, in us, is a, a loan that has been squandered, and yet a gift that we have retained. It is a deposit to be matured, and an inheritance that awaits. 
Let's pray.